What's up, guys? Welcome to the third episode of the Total Health 2020 podcast. My name is Akon Shetty. Today, we're going to be talking about coronavirus. All right, everyone, thanks again for tuning in. Like I said, today's episode is going to be all about coronavirus. And so I've been taking a class in my school, um, an elective basically, where for two weeks I learned everything I kind of can about coronavirus, COVID-19, everything that has to do with it. And today I'm going to try to answer some of the questions that I've learned in the class, um, give you guys some updates on different things um, that are going on with the virus in terms of what's happening in the news, what's happening with the vaccines, what do we know about how the virus infects and treatments kind of available. So um, let's jump into it. And so the first thing I'm going to talk about are kind of the clinical features of COVID-19. So what is COVID-19? So COVID-19 or coronavirus disease um, 19, so this virus was discovered in 2019. And even though it didn't really affect us until the early part of uh, 2020, um, it's named 19 because of that. And so this was this is a virus that was discovered first in Wuhan, China, um, presumably from the live animal markets that are there. Um, people have a lot of kind of different ideas about how the virus came about. Um, one thing I will mention are is that there's a lot of kind of conspiracies going on about whether this was originally detected first in humans and kind of spread naturally, or whether this was somehow a virus that escaped from the um, WIV or Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so there's been a couple updates recently regarding that. So I've seen a couple research articles that say it's very, very unlikely that this was a man-made virus just because of some of the mutations that were found in the virus. It's very unlikely that two of these uh, specific mutations that kind of like came about were or essentially happened um, man-made. Like it's much more likely that some of the, the some of the mutations that the virus has in its spike protein and various other virulence factors happened organically and less likely that some of these mutations were able to be man-made at the exact same time and suddenly be released. But one thing is um, there was a recent study that actually showed that there were cases of the same SARS-CoV-2 infection, and SARS-CoV-2 is just severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. So there were previous instances of the um, of viruses in the coronavirus family. So coronavirus is a positive sense RNA virus. There's multiple different kinds, and normally is responsible for just causing the common cold, but there's certain more um, virulent or Another word for that is more infective and more dangerous viruses that can occur from the same family. So there were past versions of this virus, the SARS-CoV-1, there's the MERS-CoV, and it was actually a recent study that showed the SARS-CoV-2 virus may have infected certain miners in Wuhan, and researchers may have actually taken that virus, have been studying it in the WIV or Wuhan Institute of Virology, and it may have accidentally escaped from the WIV laboratory. This is just a study that was released one or two days ago. Um, not confirmed or anything, but just wanted to kind of throw, out, throw that out there as a possibility because there are a lot of skeptics on how this actually came about. And honestly, we still don't know. I'm not sure exactly what I believe as well. But I hope that, you know, some of these markets are closed down just so things like this don't happen in the future. But getting back onto track, so what are the clinical features of COVID? So when someone gets infected by COVID-19, which is caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus, they typically present with 
characteristic features. A lot of patients are actually asymptomatic or just mildly symptomatic. Up to 80% of people will experience mild to moderate disease. 15% of people may have severe symptoms and 5% um, of people may actually end up requiring mechanical ventilation. The typical features that uh, patients will typically present with are fever, dry cough, loss of smell or taste, shortness of breath, chills, rigor, fatigue, myalgia, headache, sore throat, and diarrhea. So basically what all that means is it sounds like a much worse version of a case of the flu. So you're going to have shortness of breath, you'll have some cough, fever, um, some body pains, some headaches, things of that sort. Some things that are unique to this virus are that it does seem to cause a lot more neurological manifestations than other viruses. So one of the common presenting symptoms that people have are anosmia or hyposmia, which basically just means you're not really able to smell that well. And that can be due to a neurotropic tendency of the virus or a tendency of the virus to infect nerves, um, specifically those in the olfactory bulb or the ones in your nose. And um, it can cause a wide variety of um, symptoms elsewhere as well. You probably heard some stories yourself of people ending up in the ICU, people having strokes, heart attacks, kidney failure. Um, you know, there's a lot of potentially terrible things that can happen. And so the mechanism of the virus itself, it tends to infect ACE2 receptors. And these receptors are ubiquitous throughout your body. That's why it can have so many different effects on the heart, lung, kidney, etc. And there's kind of a wide variety of symptoms that people may experience. And we're not entirely sure why this is. It doesn't seem to be that, you know, there's different strains of viruses affecting different people. Um, it seems more to be kind of random in a sense. So the virus may be inducing a lot of damage itself, or it may be autoimmune responses. And so some people just may be more reactive to that specific infection. Some people may have greater viral loads, which can lead to a worse infection. So there's a broad spectrum of different things that could be happening and um, that could explain some of the differences in the way that virus tends to infect people. So now let's look at some of the other clinical symptoms and differentiating features of COVID-19. And so most severe cases of COVID-19 patients will end up developing pneumonia, ARDS, or that's part of where the name comes from, the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And so what this is is essentially a very, very bad reaction to that's happening in your lungs. Um, it can be either autoimmune, it can be from trauma, but essentially there's a lot of damage to the pulmonary endothelial cells that become leaky. You end up getting a lot of swelling and inflammation in your lungs, and that can lead to a lot of problems. And so that's where the virus actually gets its name from and where a lot of people end up needing mechanical ventilation, supplemental oxygen, and things of that sort. But there's some common laboratory findings that people can present with. Um, a lot of patients present with lymphopenia or just decreased white blood cell counts. There's an increased CRP in a lot of patients or C-reactive protein. And there's also an, um, a mildly prolonged PT in a lot of patients or prothrombin time. Roughly 70% of patients will have lymphopenia. 70% of patients will have an increased CRP. Close to 60% will have a prolonged PT. Um, chest x-rays are abnormal in about 60% of cases. Um, if they have severe symptoms, close to 80% of cases will have abnormal um, chest radiographs, whether that be CTs. So CTs tend to be abnormal more, um, more commonly just because they are more sensitive and specific for certain kinds of lung diseases. 
um, up to 80, 86% of cases will have an abnormal CT. Up to 95% will have an abnormal CT if it's a very severe case. The characteristic findings you'll find on um, these chest radiographs would be bilateral patchy infiltrates, and CTs will also demonstrate ground glass opacities in up to 86% of cases as well. There tends to be a peripheral distribution in up to 50% of cases, and people say that there's something called crazy paving and consolidation in the lungs, which tend to be the predominant CT findings. Up to 30% of um, hospitalized COVID patients will actually develop progressive pulmonary disease. And the major cause of mortality of COVID is actually respiratory failure, secondary, secondary to ARDS, like I mentioned before, and actually thrombosis. So this virus, like I mentioned before, it infects ACE2 receptors, which are ubiquitous throughout the body. And a lot of the damage that it ends up cause, causing is from its infection of endothelial cells and causing a very prothrombotic state. So even though it seems kind of contradictory that you'll have a prolonged PT, maybe even PTT, it actually tends to cause a um, prothrombic state, which can be more similar to something like TTP. And there's different kinds of thoughts about why that may be, whether it's um, using up a lot of the bottom, a lot of the body's um, Adams TS13 or other mechanisms may be involved, but it ends up causing a very pro-inflammatory state, a very pro-thrombotic state, while also um, leaving you prone to bleeding and things of that sort as well. So it's a very unique virus in the way it presents. So these are most of the clinical features of the virus itself. I'm also going to talk a little bit about what are the at-risk populations of SARS-CoV-2 in um, patients that are experiencing COVID, and why are some people more at risk than others, and how long are certain patients infectious? So the incubation period of the virus itself, or in other words, the time that you get exposed to the virus to the time that you start developing symptoms, it tends to be in a range from 1 to 14 days, but the average is about 5 to 7 days. So if you're going, going out somewhere, um, you decide not to quarantine for one day and got a little bit tired of staying at home and you go out to eat, for example, and someone's sitting, you know, reasonably far away from you at the next table, and they're just breathing. So there's a lot of studies that actually say the way this virus can spread can be as simple, something as simple as just sitting next to someone who's breathing. And so there's, obviously, it's, you're going to be more likely to contract the virus if someone's coughing, if they're sneezing. And that's just because the virus tends to harbor itself in different areas of your respiratory tract. And so whether it's in your upper, lower respiratory tract, um, it tends to kind of sit there. And so when you're exhaling, you're breathing out certain number of viral particles at a certain speed. When you're coughing, you're breathing out more of those at a, at a higher speed. And when you're sneezing, even more of those at an even higher speed. And so what ends up really mattering is the amount of viral load that you get from someone over a period of time. And so if you go and talk to someone with COVID and they sneeze right in your face, that may be enough for you to just get the virus right there. But if you're sitting in a restaurant 10 feet away from someone and they're just exhaling and they're breathing out a couple of viral particles every few seconds and you're at that restaurant for a full hour, you can still contract the disease that way. And that's one of the scary things about it, at least to me, is that you never really know how you're going to get it, who's infectious. Because like I mentioned before, um, a lot of people are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And so just sitting in a restaurant you may not know who has it and you may end up getting it even if no one coughs near you, no one sneezes next to you. Even if you're wearing a mask for a lot of your time, which is obviously very difficult if you're doing something like eating at a restaurant, but it's a very scary virus for that reason. It's, it's hard to 
know how and if you'll get it, even if you're doing all the right things. Um, so it really is important to heed the um, warnings of everyone and kind of just stay at home, do your best to wear a mask at all times, um, wash your hands as, as often as you can. So another way you can get it is just simply touching objects or fomites, essentially any object that someone touches that if they have any viral particles on their hand, those viral particles can live on that surface for a certain period of time. If you touch it, then you end up touching your nose, your eyes, any kind of mucous membrane where the virus can potentially attach to, then you can easily get the virus that way. But going back, so there tends to be an incubation period of on average seven days. So you get exposed to someone, then seven days later, you start experiencing symptoms or the, the viral load is kind of at its peak, essentially. So that tends to be the mean interval um, in terms of like the incubation period, some people will experience the onset of symptoms a little bit later. It just kind of depends, of course. But the mean interval from onset of symptoms to hospitalization is actually 9 to 12 days. And so soon after you start experiencing symptoms, after about a week, um, you only have three or four days before you may end up in the hospital, just kind of depending on the severity of your infection. And the mean duration of symptom onset to discharge from the hospital is 25 days. So if you end up needing to go to the hospital or someone you know ends up needing to go to the hospital, they're usually there for close to two weeks, which is a pretty long time to stay in the hospital. And there's certain kind of signs to predict how severe the course might be. So a respiratory rate greater than 24 beats, uh, breaths per minute, sorry, a heart rate over 125 beats per minute, and O2 saturation less than 90% on room air. Those are all predictive of a severe course of the disease and may um, indicate like a longer stay in the hospital. Um, there are also lab results that can be predictive of a severe course. If you have an increased D-dimer, increased ferritin, LDH, decreased platelet count, and decreased absolute lymphocyte count. So these are just going back to some of the things I mentioned before. The very pro-thrombotic, pro-inflammatory state. And if you have low white blood cell counts, things of that sort, that can also prolong your stay. So these are all important things to kind of consider. Um, important reason to go see your doctor, get lab results, and see what can really be done if you feel like you may have it. Um, different risk factors for COVID include older age. Um, certain ethnicities seem to be at higher risk. Um, there's studies showing that um, Hispanic and Black populations tend to be affected worse by the virus. Um, presumably, and I would think so as well, it seems most likely to be due to socioeconomic factors rather than an actual genetic kind of like susceptibility to the disease. And that's something we definitely need to look at. Um, more carefully and try to fix because it we should not be having that problem in our country right now. But kind of going on from that, seems that male gender seem to be at higher risk for COVID um, and obviously having comorbidities. So this is what you've kind of heard of. If you have any prior chronic medical conditions, you're going to be at a higher risk for severe complications. Um, and these can include hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, lung and um, kidney liver disease, cancers, um, different kinds of malignancies, if you have an organ transplant, or you're just immunosuppressed from taking certain medications. For example, if you have rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease and you're on an immunosuppressant, that can put you at a higher risk for having not only the virus, but a more severe version of, um, or more, more severe course of the virus. And so people with underlying health conditions are up to six times more likely to be hospitalized and up to 12 times more likely to die from the disease compared to someone who has no pre-existing conditions. And it's, um, studies have shown that asymptomatic patients, they actually likely have the same viral load as a lot of the symptomatic ones, and they can transmit the virus for at least 14 days. So even if you 
went somewhere, you're not really sure if you have the virus, but you actually do have the virus. You're not showing any symptoms. You can be a carrier for the disease. You can carry that virus for at least 14 days. So that's why it's very, very important to quarantine. Even if you feel like you're impervious, you're immune to all the kind of effects of the virus, you, anything, you know, you, you never really know. So it's important to protect others is kind of the main key point here. We're not only doing this for ourselves, we're doing this to make sure that people who have worse chronic conditions are also safe. People with children, people with families. Um, it's really important to think about people other than yourself sometimes. And this is one of those cases where you want to do your best to not transmit a virus that you may not even know you have. And the absence of symptoms doesn't really mean that they're free from harm. So even asymptomatic individuals, once they, if, if they were to go to the doctor and they were to have a CT scan, up to 33 to 48% of people actually had signs of disease, even though they had no symptoms. And so signs are something that we as physicians can clinically tell from either labs or images or physical exam, or symptoms is something the patient himself or herself is experiencing. And so you can have physical signs of lung damage on um, chest radiographs, but have no symptoms at all. So that's something that's also pretty significant and important to kind of take into account. And so the next topic that, that I kind of want to touch on are what are the different modalities for detection and how do we kind of contrast that with other modes of um, testing and detection that are used for other viruses, for example, the older SARS and MERS um, viruses. And what are the different kinds of types of testing? Which ones are better, more sensitive, and specific for disease? And so um, the current kind of test, or one of the main tests that we're looking at right now, is the WHO, or World Health Organization's RT-PCR test. What that stands for is just reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. And so what that does is it targets the SARS-CoV-2 envelope gene and the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase gene. And if both the targets are detected, then the results reported as positive. If only one's detected, then the results reported as inconclusive. Um, the CDC's original assay, it originally included three different amplification genes of um, genes that are on the virus. So there's the N gene, the NS3, um, which was designed to detect all the SARS-like coronaviruses. The N1 and N2 genes were specific for SARS-CoV-2, and the NS3 was produced too many pulse false positive results, and so it had to be eliminated. But there's a lot of different kinds of ways that we can test for this virus, essentially. And so the first kind of key distinction I want to make are viral tests or antibody tests. And so a lot of people have kind of asked me about this and um, are not really sure about what the difference kind of is. And so when we're talking about RT-PCR, usually we're talking about viral tests. Um, currently, these kinds of tests are favored right now. So what viral tests tell you is if you have the virus in you right now, whereas what antibody tests tell you is if your body has produced an immune response to this virus. And so the kind of key difference between this is viral tests are more sensitive and specific for the virus itself in the acute phase. And so say if I go to a restaurant, I'm not sure if I have the disease. Um, like I said before, the mean incubation period is roughly five to seven days. So if I go to the go to get tested the day after going to the restaurant it may not be positive. The viral load may not be high enough at that point. But if I wait a few days and I go and get tested and it comes back positive, that's usually going to be the RT-PCR test. It tells you whether you have the virus in a high enough load to be detected at that time. Whereas if I were to go four or five days after being infected for an antibody test, that one would still 
likely be negative because it, our body hasn't had the opportunity to create those antibodies yet. It still hasn't created that immune response. And so that's something you definitely want to be on the lookout for. If anyone's telling you to get an antibody test or because no one's really a lot of people that are on the front line right now, we're still not entirely sure about what is correct, what's best, whatnot, because it's such a new situation for everyone. But it's pretty clear that right now the RT-PCR tests, viral tests, are the preferred methods of um, detection. And ultimately, the reason that we're preferring the RT-PCR to the antibody test is just because um, in the acute phase and maybe even later on in the infection to confirm reinfection or something like that, the RT-PCR tends to have higher sensitivity and specificity. And so what that means is sensitivity is essentially if you test positive, what's the probability that you actually have the disease? And then specificity is given that you're testing negative, what's the probability that you actually don't have the disease? And so a highly sensitive test will tell you it's good to use for screening because um, it's going to pick up pretty much everyone that does have the disease. So you don't want to uh, test to tell you you don't have the disease when you actually do. But you also want a specific test because you don't want a test that will always just kind of give you a positive answer so that it never misses anyone with the disease. You want it to be specific for that disease and only kind of give you a positive when you actually have the disease. So those are important kinds of distinctions that kind of need to be made with tests. And the RT-PCR test is the um, most sensitive and specific test we have right now. But within that, there's a lot of variation in terms of... Um, you know, different kinds of RT-PCR tests. So we can do it via nasopharyngeal swab. We can do it via spit. We can do it via oropharyngeal swab. And there's different kinds of um, proteins and envelopes that we're testing within the RT-PCR test. And so it's not, you know, kind of all-inclusive, just RT-PCR test is the best. There's a lot of different companies coming out with different tests, ones that are faster, slower, just depending on what exactly we're testing. And so that's a, another important thing to kind of um, look at. And so different laboratories and diagnostic testing companies, they're designing PCR tests that target various combinations of um, the open reading frame, the envelope, the nucleocapsid, the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase genes. And the limit of detection of most of these assays were about 100 viral copies per milliliter or higher. And that's important to kind of take into account just how much of a viral load you have before the test will read positive. Um, and recent studies also indicate that the SARS-CoV-2 viral load, it tends to peak after the first five to six days of disease onset. So that's around the same as the incubation period, like I mentioned. And so, but the RNA can still be detected during the second week of disease onset, but the viral load is lower. So there's a specific time when the test will be most specific and sensitive. And despite the high sensitivity, it's kind of doesn't have the best specificity. So it's insufficient to kind of exclude um, SARS-CoV-2 infection in patients that have pre high pretest probability of infection. Um, and sorry, that's not specificity necessarily, but essentially, if you present to the doctor and you have symptoms that are very, very likely to be COVID, for example, um, so you're coming in with, in the middle of this pandemic, you recently had a contact who may have had COVID, um, and you're coming in with new respiratory symptoms, high fever, et cetera, and you get a negative result on the RT-PCR test, even though it's a sensitive test, it may not be enough to exclude the diagnosis of you having COVID. And so depending on kind of the case, a lot of times the doctor will just kind of send you home, say, okay, monitor yourself at home, and then um, we can come back and check on you later. But depending on who you are, say if you're a healthcare worker, that increases your probability to have the disease even more. Um, if you 
need to go back to work for some reason, kind of just depending on the specific situation, um, they may end up testing you again. And only by testing repeatedly and repeatedly testing negative is um, kind of the way to say, okay, you probably don't have the COVID-19 infection. Um, so like I mentioned before, there's different ways to get the RT-PCR test. Um, nasopharyngeal swabs and not throat swabs are recommended um, in order to obtain the test. Um, throat swabs are a little bit less sensitive and specific. Um, there's recently a study that I read that came out of Yale, and they're trying to essentially get um, permission or money from the FDA and from the government to allow for spit samples to um, essentially get um, COVID diagnoses. And so that, that'll be really interesting. It's supposedly going to be much cheaper in order to obtain spit, exam, uh, spit samples because for one, um, likely the patient can do it themselves. They can just kind of spit in the little um, tube and give it to whatever healthcare professional will decide to take it to go for testing. Um, in addition, it'll likely be a, a little bit faster than the nasopharyngeal swab samples. Um, but obviously there's a problem with, is this the same quality of sample? Is this just as sensitive, just as specific? And as far as I know, they only tested it on NBA players. And that's just because there's pretty much no one in the world right now getting tested as much as NBA players are in order to kind of have the NBA going right now. Um, they're getting tested left and right almost every single game, after every single game, um, and by various different methods. And so they tested on NBA players and... From what they found in a fairly small sample size, it's supposed to be a pretty good um, test, but uh, it hasn't really been improved, uh, approved yet to be, you know, kind of commercially available for everyone. But um, in addition, so since uh, viral loads are going to be higher in patients with severe disease and um, lower in patients with mild disease, uh, the RT-PCR test can also kind of vary um, due to that. And so most patients with mild disease, they're test negative by 10 days after symptom onset. And so what that kind of means is you're likely not going to transmit the virus after having symptoms for a specific amount of time. It's still better to be safe than sorry, but if you were to go in 10 days after you had symptom onset, um, it's likely that the test would actually come back negative at that point. It means you're on kind of like the tail end of the disease and you're not likely to be as infective. And um, that's why the viral load will likely be less as well, and you won't be able to pick it up with a test. But if you have a severe disease, for instance, you likely have a higher viral load, and you're going to be shedding the virus for a longer period of time, and so that can be up to 20 days post-symptom onset. Um, so now going into antibody tests, like I mentioned, it'll take a while for your body to actually produce an immune response that creates antibodies, and so that's what the serologic tests do. They detect antibodies. But the benefit of this, this test, at least in my opinion, is that you can check to see if someone had the infection in the past. Um, we still don't know the exact details for how long these antibodies will hang around. There's been a lot of um, talk about this in the media recently. If Once you get infected with COVID, can you get reinfected? And that's something it's likely the answer is no, but we're not really sure. I've heard anecdotes of people saying they have, but there's kinds of um, people saying it's more likely that they just had the original infection that they didn't clear completely. Um, just because our bodies are pretty robust in the amount of, in the kind of type of immune response that we can develop. And so it's very unlikely that even though this is a novel virus and it's causing all these problems, it's very unlikely that it's kind of an exception to an age old rule. Um, but having these antibodies, there's different kinds of antibodies and usually we're testing two specifically. 
one called IgM and one called IgG. The IgM antibody, it's usually a better detector of an acute infection. And so if that is high, um, that usually means you either very, very recently cleared the infection, you have an active infection or something along those lines, or it's if you have high titers or high levels of IgG antibody that can um, predict a more chronic course of infection or clearing the infection in the past. But antibodies may wane after time. So for example, if you get COVID in June, you clear it in June, and then I were to test you for antibodies in August, we don't necessarily know, or it may vary pretty wildly, um, widely whether you may have the IgG antibodies um, one to two months later or not. And so um, one thing that's kind of important to think about is how our immune systems actually work. And so even if you were to have negative antibodies in August, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are prone to infection, because what happens when you get uh, get an infection and clear an infection is not only do you create these antibodies, but you create an adaptive immune response. And so you create memory B cells, memory T cells that are still there to fight the infection afterwards, even if the levels of antibodies wane. So as soon as you see that infection again, your body will immediately create much more antibodies than you did the first time. You'll have a much more robust immune response. And so you still can be immune, even if you have low antibody levels. So that's something to keep um, in mind as well. And um, so studies show and um, experts recommend antibody tests really should not be used to detect COVID, um, at least acutely. And most hospitalized patients with confirmed viral RNA have detectable IgG antibodies roughly 14 days after symptom onset. So it can come pretty quickly. And IgM antibodies can become detectable one to two days earlier. Um, so it doesn't seem to be that much of a difference in terms of um, what you would typically expect for when these levels would um, rise and fall. But it does seem that seasonal coronavirus antibodies decline only a few weeks after the infection. And that's why once you get the common cold from the seasonal coronavirus antibody, you're not necessarily never going to get the common cold again, right? It's very likely that you can still get the common cold again a few weeks, months, or years later. It just kind of depends. Um, but more encouragingly, the SARS-CoV antibodies, they peak approximately four months after infection, and they protect the patient for longer periods of time, depending on the kind of study you're looking for. So um, it really just depends. It's, it's a hot topic right now to kind of determine how long we really have immunity. And I think the main reason for this is trying to determine when we can kind of go back to work and whether vaccines will work, whether we'll be, we'll be able to um, generate a robust enough immune response or vaccines to really um, grant us immunity, herd immunity from this disease. And so um, while some of the evidence I gave you might seem contradictory, it's just because a lot of studies are really not 100% about any of this. And so it's important to keep all that in mind. Now I want to talk about what do you do if you think you might have COVID-19 or someone you know, someone you love. So one thing I want to kind of point out is as soon as you think you may have symptoms, no matter what it, no matter what you may be feeling, why you may be feeling that way, please wear a mask. Um, a lot of people don't really understand that. The mask is less to protect yourself from others and more to protect others from you. It's much more effective if someone who has symptoms, has the disease, is wearing the mask because it pre prevents them or at least, you know, slows down the process of them transmitting their virus to others. So first, please, if you can wear a mask, try to avoid going out to public areas and please go to the doctor. And so most of the time, the doctor's going to tell you, to kind of monitor your symptoms, manage your symptoms at home, 
Um, and that's because, like I mentioned before, most of the cases are not very severe. And so the number one thing you can do is really go to your doctor, make sure um, they test you, confirm if you're positive or not, um, listen to their specific recommendations on based on the kind of patients they've been dealing with. So depending on how severe the virus is in your area, how the doctor kind of treats his patients, you may get different advice, but um, it's definitely important to go be tested, get some lab results. Um, figure out how severe you are. And so they may kind of stratify you or divide you into different categories, whether you have symptoms, you have mild symptoms, moderate symptoms, severe symptoms. Kind of depending on that, they'll tell you what to do. Um, if you yourself don't feel like you have symptoms or you have mild symptoms, it'll mostly be moderate, monitoring yourself or um, whoever it is that may have the disease at home by themselves. If you have more severe condition, they may um, recommend you going to the ER or a hospital it just kind of depends on the situation but there needs to be a lot of precautions that are taken and so it's important that you tell them why you're going to the doctor you don't just show up you call them beforehand you tell them hey I think I may have this and that way they can protect others from you in case you do have it and you from others um, for the same reason so that's usually what will happen if you think you have the virus um, I'll talk a little bit about vaccines and treatments as well more than likely though It'll be kind of just symptomatic management at home if you do have the disease, um, whether that just be kind of flu medications just to kind of keep your temperature down, your cough or um, pains down with um, Tylenol and basic things like that. Um, if you do have more severe disease, they are testing different kinds of treatments. And that's, those, that's something I'll talk about now. So um, the two treatments that have kind of come away and ahead of actually providing some pretty noticeable benefits are dexamethasone and remdesivir. You've probably heard both these drugs in the news multiple times. So remdesivir, it's a nucleoside prodrug that inhibits the transcription of many different kinds of RNA viruses. And it's been shown that it may actually shorten the um, duration of disease of COVID-19 and the hospital stays by an average of up to three days. And that's, that can be pretty significant. That can also potentially be life or death depending on when they start the drug what kind of symptoms you have, how severe you have um, the condition. So remdesivir, it's a, it's a viral drug that's been used for other viruses in the past. They've kind of repurposed it for COVID, noticed it's worked pretty well. And um, the earlier you start it, the better. If you kind of have very severe disease, you're already in the hospital, um, you're already ventilated and you start the drug, it may not have as much of an effect as if you start it earlier, but you are predicted to have a severe disease course. And so that's where some of those lab results and um, imaging findings come in, trying to predict who will have a severe disease course and start these medications. Um, and the other drug I mentioned, dexamethasone, it's a very, very common drug, actually. Um, it's used for a lot of different conditions. It's essentially a steroid. It's meant to kind of reduce your the inflammation or immune response in your body. And so it's targeting a, a completely different mechanism from remdesivir. But because the virus is so kind of strange in the way it works and it doesn't necessarily always directly lead to a lot of damage in your body, but kind of indirectly induces inflammation and, and um, an immune response that can damage yourself. Um, that's where dexamethasone comes in handy. And the big difference that I kind of want to point out here between dexamethasone and remdesivir is the cost of the drug. So because de dexamethasone is such an easy, commonly used drug to use, it's very cheap and pretty much any patient with um, COVID can get access to this drug, whereas patients who want remdesivir or need remdesivir, it'll be an expensive drug and um, it'll cost you a lot. I don't know if insurance is completely covered yet. I don't know what the situation with that is, but that's one important thing to kind of um, consider. 
Another drug that they've been looking at recently is uh, tocilizumab. And so that's a monoclonal antibody to IL-6, which is just a pro-inflammatory um, interleukin or kind of um, molecule that your body produces in response to stress and inflammation. And um, so that's been trialed in patients, and that's presumed to decrease the severity of something called cytokine storm. And that's something also you probably heard in the news. And that's, again, relating to this kind of excessive immune response that your body produces to try to get rid of this virus. And so that can decrease the um, incidence of a very severe cytokine storm and very severe respiratory disease. Um, additionally, lopinavir slash ritonavir or calitra. So it's a mixture of two HIV protease inhibitors that's under investigation. Um, recently, China approved the use of Favalavir, which is another antiviral drug that's typically used for influenza, and that's also an investigational therapy for COVID. Um, I wanted to touch specifically on hydroxychloroquine a little bit. Um, there was a lot of talk in the news about hydroxychloroquine for a while. Um, that's a drug, it's an anti-malarial drug, and that also has some kind of immune-modulating effects. Um, it's presumed to work on COVID by inhibiting the uptake of zinc and essentially the uptake of um, the ability of the virus to enter cells because of this. Um, it's not a really well understood mechanism and there's a lot of side effects that come with this drug. There, You can have retinal problems so whenever you take hydroxychloroquine for an extended period of time it's recommended you go see an ophthalmologist to kind of get routine eye exams because it can damage your, your vision quite severely if um, taken incorrectly. In addition, it can have a lot of heart problems, a lot of um, ear problems, a lot of different side effects throughout your body. And so recently, even though it's been touted for its potential therapeutic effect, um, it doesn't really benefit patients with COVID. The studies that were done early on were very poorly done studies, not very large sample sizes, not very good study metrics that were um, taken about. And so the FDA recently reverted its emergency authorization because they found that the risks outweigh the benefits of um, such a drug. And so it's not really recommended that people use that drug anymore. Um, in, on March 24th, the FDA approved the investigational use of convalescent plasma. And so essentially, patients who have COVID and have recovered from it, like I mentioned, they develop antibodies. And so if you take their plasma from their blood, which is essentially just um, a diluted version of their blood that contains a lot of proteins, and one of those proteins will be the antibodies against um, different viruses. So if you take that plasma and you um, give it to patients who have very severe infections, those antibodies can help them clear the infection. So that's convalescent plasma. And um, the FDA approved use for this for very severe life-threatening disease. And um, it's been shown to be pretty promising. And so that can also be a method of um, use, although it is very expensive and kind of hard to obtain. And so that's one of the big drawbacks to that. Um, and based on kind of the understanding of the virus, there's different kinds of investigational therapies that can be thought about. So we do know that it attacks by binding to the ACE2 receptor, and so potentially ARB blockers, so angiotensin receptor 2 blockers, may interfere with the virus's ability to um, infect certain cells. In addition, different kinds of um, monoclonal antibodies against either the spike protein on the virus can potentially interfere with uptake of the virus. Um, supplemental interferon may also help with this process. And so there's a lot of different investigational therapies that are being thought about um, to help kind of deal with this situation.
And so that ultimately brings me to my last point that I want to make, and that's talking about SARS vaccines. And so this is something that's currently kind of being talked about a lot, and this is kind of the next step about where do we go from here? How do we kind of speed up this process of quarantine, speed up kind of getting back to our daily normal lives? And so if we're able to develop a successful vaccine, then we can potentially maybe kind of put this whole situation behind us and try to get back to a semi-new normal. And there's a lot of different challenges to creating a successful vaccine. Um, a lot of them are political, economical, um, just kind of really depends. But because this is such a serious um, virus, serious condition that it causes, and it's caused trillions and trillions of dollars of economic impact across the globe, there's a lot of efforts being done to develop a safe, effective um, virus as quickly as possible. And so the majority of subunit vaccines um, or vaccines based on a specific protein constituting the virus, they target the spike glycoprotein of the virus. And um, the SARS-CoV virus, it uses this glycoprotein to bind and enter host cells. Therefore, a vaccine that induces strong immune responses against this protein will definitely have a significant effect on the deterrence of this virus and its ability to enter host cells during a natural infection. So the main um, protein main kind of thing that we're looking at in regards to this, these vaccines is how we can target that spike glycoprotein because it's been fully sequenced. We know pretty much exactly what it does. Um, targeting this this protein will kind of inhibit the process of the virus entering host cells. And so several vaccines were developed for the MERS and SARS viruses in the past, and most of those were based on the um, S glycoprotein. Um, but one very unique thing about this virus in particular is that we're looking at DNA-based vaccine studies. And so we've never really done that before. Usually um, we use protein-based vaccines, which take a lot longer to kind of develop. Like if we're developing a vaccine specifically against this um, spike protein, um, proteins are much larger than DNA and RNA. And so it takes longer to develop. It, it's a longer kind of chain reaction kind of process in terms of development. But what's novel about the way we're approaching this virus is we're potentially looking at RNA-based vaccines. And that's something that's really, really unique um, because RNA-based vaccines, if we essentially are using RNA as um, kind of the mechanism for generating an immune response, it's much easier to develop, much quicker. It'll be much cheaper once it actually is developed, although it's definitely um, expensive in terms of research and development for that currently. But it's definitely something that's under investigation right now. Um, and it's also important to kind of look at different types of vaccines, whether they're live attenuated or, in other words, live vaccines that are kind of um, minimized in terms of their infectivity, whether they're killed or inactivated, or um, if, whether they're nucleic acid vaccines, like I just mentioned. Those are all kind of currently being looked at. There's different advantages and disadvantages to each of them. So live vaccines, they have a chance of reverting to virulence or they have a chance of causing an infection. It's very, very, very low. But when you do use these vaccines, they generate a more robust immune response because they are live and they are actively able to replicate with inside your body. Whereas if you use a killed or an activated vaccine, um, it's a less robust immune response. You generally need different kinds of adjuvants to create a robust immune response, but there's no real chance of um, getting an infection this way. And the nucleic acid vaccines, like I mentioned, are um, very promising. And um, personally, I, I think the DNA-based vaccine is very um, promising, like I kind of mentioned, and it's something that we should definitely look at. And so overall, I feel like the landscape of vaccines is very promising. The landscape of treatments for the disease is very promising. 
Um, I'm going to definitely kind of keep up to date with the literature, try to come back to you guys and give you updates as they kind of happen. Um, one website I definitely would recommend is, and I'll leave it in the description, it's Nature has a kind of ongoing summary of all the available research that's available for COVID. And I think that's very important to kind of keep on looking at. So, I mean, this episode was recorded um, August 24th, 2020. And so nearly every two to three days, they'll, they'll post updates on the, um, the literature as it kind of appears. And so kind of recently, they have been studying vaccines um, being injected through the nose instead of through um, um, the traditional routes like intramuscular or whatever it may be. And they've um, certain studies in uh, Washington University of St. Louis have showed that um, intranasal vaccinations may actually generate a more robust um, immune response. And so that's something that's definitely underway. Um, we're also kind of looking at different mapping different viral proteins, seeing which ones may, more, may be more effective. Like I mentioned before, the spitting test, um, seeing if that helps at all. And then there's just a lot of updates that are being done on this virus constantly because of how significant of an economic impact it has and how much research is really being done for it. And so I hope everything I kind of talked about today made sense. It was helpful. Um, like I, I'll try to keep kind of updating you guys with the research as it comes out. Um, but overall, that, that's the gist of kind of what the virus is, how it infects, why it's so serious, and what we're kind of doing to take care of it, control it. Um, so please, please, please stay at home if you can. Wear the appropriate protection if you can. Go see a doctor if you feel like you need to. Um, keep your family safe. Be on the lookout for um, updates. Stay up to date. Stay educated on this subject matter. That can only help you. Um, and thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. This is a bit of a longer episode, but it was a lot of fun sharing with you guys today. And hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much.